You're listening to World Talk Radio, Studio A. The Lincoln Museum, born 1928, died 2008. We'll talk about the life of this wonderful institution when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. My husband and I met at a strip mall dance. It was a beautiful old strip mall. I had seen my husband before at a big rally at the highway on ramp for all the men who had enlisted. He was going to war. Four years later, we married at the little convenience store downtown. When we lose a historic place, we lose a part of who we are. To learn how you can help protect places in your community, visit nationaltrust.org. History is in our hands. A message brought to you by the National Trust for Historic Preservation and the Ad Council. It's a wake-up call. It's time to get serious about preparation and to understand that the threat is very real. This is a message from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, recorded by Roger Kilfoyle, New York City firefighter. The topic, getting serious. It's irrelevant where you live or how many people live in your community or other variables like that. It's, it's America. America's the target, not just New York. We know there are some positive things that you can do to better prepare yourself and your family. It's simple steps to prepare yourself for events that may be out of your control. So, you know, having these little supplies together, you can prepare for problems that may happen. Learn to be prepared at www.ready.gov or call for a free brochure, 1-800-BE-READY. That's 1-800-237-3239. A public service message brought to you by the Ad Council. Listen. The world is talking. World Talk Radio. Studio A. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and today our show focuses on the Lincoln Museum in Fort Wayne, Indiana, a museum dedicated to the life and times of Abraham Lincoln, Uh, founded by the Lincoln National Life Insurance Company originally in 1928 with Lewis Warren as its first director. Uh, As we discussed, as as I talked about in our first segment, and that brings us to to the years of growth for the museum, how it became uh, what it is today and what it will still be for a few weeks until it's closing on June 30, 2008. The uh, uh, the reason for having no guests today is I worked nine years at the museum. Uh, I figure I know as much about it as anyone who was there at that time, and uh, there won't be another opportunity to share these thoughts while the museum is still with us, so I thought I w- would take advantage of the chance to do that today. The, uh, as I said, I worked there beginning in 1993. There were many uh, interesting uh, times there, Things got off perhaps on something of the wrong foot, uh, as I, I mentioned in the first segment. The director of the museum uh, was newly hired just before I was, but the person above her to whom uh, to whom the director reported uh, was a longtime life insurance uh, executive. Uh, she reported directly to the CEO. She was a very powerful person and uh, within the company, and uh, she had reasons not to 
care for me, uh, or for the, the museum director for that matter. One time we were discussing the possibility of the museum purchasing a an artwork, a, a statue. It was to be the work of the, the sculptor who produced something you can see, I think, still there today in, in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, on the, the main square outside the Wills House where Lincoln spent the night before he gave the Gettysburg Address. There is a life-size uh, statue in realistic uh, colors of Abraham Lincoln, and he is talking to a tourist, uh, a statue of a tourist, a modern-day tourist, uh, with, I don't recall if it's just the, the man himself or if he has family with him. And Lincoln is wearing his you know, Lincolnian gear, but he's talking to somebody, uh, a modern person. Well, this was somewhat controversial when it was installed there, but in the uh, early 90s, in the first year I was there, 1993, I believe, uh, we got the call from uh, from the boss, uh, the director's boss, oh, come up and talk to me. We might be able to buy one of the statues from this guy. Uh, wouldn't that be a great thing for the museum? Now, Already the director and I were trying to establish the autonomy of the museum as a cultural institution. It was not the plaything of the executives of the Lincoln Company, and most of them didn't treat it as such. But we were certainly reluctant to have them making decisions on, uh, on acquisitions, uh, which they could do. It's their money. But uh, uh, if we'd been hired to use our historical expertise to uh, help make those kinds of decisions, then, then that's what we were going to do. So we pointed out some of the flaws of, of this plan, among them the, the controversy associated with the uh, with the artwork, uh, the fact that this is modern artwork and not really a historical piece at all. And the point we didn't make strongly enough at the time, but certainly comes to mind when you see the piece today or recently, which is that the, the modern tourist of 1990 uh, in 2008 doesn't look modern anymore. Uh, is a little time warp uh, character from almost 20 years ago wearing the clothes of the time. Men's fashions haven't changed that much. It's not that different. But he, he looks like somebody who's dressed out of uh, you know, his older brother's closet uh, by accident. Uh, the, the clothes just don't look contemporary anymore. And it's kind of an odd piece. So we thought for many reasons it was not appropriate for the museum and uh, suggested it not be uh, a piece like that not be obtained. It wasn't, but from that day on, the, the director and I were marked down as the the academic snobs of the museum. We don't understand what the ordinary person wants. We're elitist. We're eggheads. Um, to myself, I'm thinking, you hired a Harvard PhD and you don't want an egghead? What were you thinking? But there it is. Well, going back in our story uh, to the founding of the museum, 1933, uh, the Lincoln Museum uh, grew through the Depression years. There were some substantial collections the museum obtained. Uh, eventually, Lewis Warren took on an assistant uh, who would succeed him as the museum's second full-time director, and that was R. Gerald McMurtry. And if you've studied Lincoln much, that name is familiar to you. Uh, he was a very successful director at the Lincoln Museum, also at the uh, Abraham Lincoln Museum in Harrogate, um, uh, where Lincoln, in Harrogate, Tennessee, where Lincoln Memorial University is located. He ran that museum uh, successfully. He collaborated with uh, Mark E. Neely, Jr. on uh, 
the insanity file, uh, which I'll talk about momentarily, and uh, generally established, uh, uh, he expanded Lincoln lore when he worked at, at the Lincoln Museum and had a very successful uh, tenure as museum director there. He had uh, uh, in more interest, perhaps, than Warren did in collecting objects, three-dimensional objects, uh, uh, tchotchkes from Lincoln's presidential campaigns uh, in particular. There are a lot of political items entered the collection, and that helped make the museum a more visible and interesting place for people to visit. In the early 60s, I want to say 1961, the museum expanded again, moved to another location, still within the offices of the Lincoln National Life Insurance Company, but now down to the first floor where visitors from the outside could more easily find it and make their way in and uh, see what the museum was about. It would move uh, yet again uh, to another first floor location uh, in the 1970s. That's where it was when I arrived in 1993. Still somewhat hard to find, though. Uh, the building was an office building, not uh, a place you would go unless you had business with an insurance company. Uh, so it wasn't really uh, a warm and receptive place. Uh, as rules against smoking grew, for example, uh, the insurance workers could no longer smoke at their desks. They had to come outside to smoke. So they would congregate around the revolving doors and create huge billowing clouds of toxic smoke through which then busloads of schoolchildren would be marched on their way to the museum. Uh, eventually we were able to get that policy changed. But the, the coexistence of an insurance company and a museum was always somewhat uneasy. Even the volunteers of the museum, I can recall, looking out uh, the plate glass windows into the lobby at visitors who were mystified. Where do I go, having entered the lobby of this building? Where's the museum? I'm not here for insurance. And our volunteers, uh, the ones when I got there, would uh, kind of snicker and laugh at the ignorant people in the hall. Uh, we tried to change that culture and be nice to the visitors. That's why we're here. But uh, sometimes it was amusing looking at them lost out there. Well, McMurtry ran the museum until the 1970s when he was succeeded by Dr. Mark E. Neely, Jr. Uh, Neely was the first professionally trained uh, doctoral degree holding historian to run the museum and took it in new directions that further made it uh, one of the leading Lincoln museums in the country. He continued to collect documents uh, that added to the, the museum's research collection. He was very interested in politics, uh, in the imagery of politics, in uh, in, in uh, well, in many things, his research was uh, was of an extraordinarily high level. He published stories in Lincoln lore that were uh, on a level with what you would find in academic journals. Uh, it was a lonely operation. Dr. Neely ran the place with uh, his longtime assistant, Ruth Cook, and uh, sometimes one or two other people, but it was not, uh, there were not other historians around for him to chat with. He, he uh, connected with people outside the museum, collaborated, for example, with Gabor Borat and Harold Holzer on the Lincoln Image, a landmark publication that used the Lincoln Museum's collection to show how Lincoln portrayed himself, how he consciously shaped his own visual image in the eyes of the American people. 
the museum thus was, was uh, reasonably successful, uh, drew, I, I would guess, maybe 20,000 visitors a year, many of them school children, uh, and they came to see an exhibit last remodeled in the 1970s uh, when Neely was there. That was uh, uh, quite attractive and, and uh, written at a high level, not, not, uh, not written down for children. Uh, uh, really a worthwhile place. That was the exhibit that I first saw in 1993 when I was invited to interview there, and I would have to say I was pleasantly surprised by the exhibit. Having not heard of this place previously, I wondered, what kind of museum does an insurance company have? Will it be a real museum? Will it be filled with pictures of Abraham Lincoln signing insurance contracts as if... uh, uh, an attempt to, to uh, sell product rather than teach history? Will it be uh, what what history uh, museum people derisively call the book on a wall, just uh, one panel after another of uh, foam board graphic uh, illustrations with captions uh, that, that, that lifelessly take you from, from one thing to another as you walk around the room? And it was none of those. It, it was a legitimate history museum. It was not a book on a wall. And it was uh, not uh, a a plaything or a a corporate shell for Lincoln National. But by 1992, the question, what does an insurance company have to do with a museum, had occurred to many, many people. Not those who attended the museum, uh, the 20,000 who did, uh, not those who paid to see the museum because there was no fee. The museum didn't charge anything. It didn't charge anything for photographs in those days. You could write to them and say, I'd like 28 by 10 glossy photos of Abraham Lincoln in various poses, and they'd send them to you for free. Uh, it was a little-known but uh, uh, fabulous boondoggle for, for Lincoln researchers. Well, in 1992, the corporation decided it was not their role to operate a museum, and they began shopping the collection around to see if they could perhaps close the museum and give its collection to the Smithsonian or to uh, the Lincoln Home in Springfield or some other place. They found, somewhat to their surprise, two things. One was that you can't just give a collection away. Uh, It's not something another institution will accept unless you give with it a sufficient bequest of money to uh, help you pay for the maintenance and care of the collection uh, that it it requires and deserves. It would not be an ethical thing for an institution to do to accept a collection knowing they could not properly care for it. So the insurance executives, uh, somewhat surprised to find people didn't want their gift, uh, realized it was not just a gift but a responsibility, a legacy that they had to care for. The second thing that... that, uh, happened to uh, perhaps their surprise was that the public uh, spoke up as one in Fort Wayne, Indiana and said, don't take the museum away. We like the museum. We've been visiting it for decades. Uh, We want it here. So the museum, uh, the the company officials rather reconsidered, having found no one who would take the museum and having found a renewed public interest, they decided to rebuild the museum. They were moving the corporate headquarters from one building to another in downtown Fort Wayne, and they decided that they would move the museum as well, open a new, larger, more up-to-date Lincoln Museum in the building 
with the corporate headquarters. Uh, it was a building that had once been a department store. And to do that, they would need new staff members. Mark Neely had left the museum by 1992, driven out by the uh, company's lack of appreciation for what he had done. Just about as he was leaving, uh, he won the Pulitzer Prize. His book, The Fate of Liberty, a uh, study of Lincoln's uh, civil rights and civil liberties policies during the war, uh, was recognized as the best book on history published in that year. And quite to their astonishment, the, the people at Lincoln National realized they had not just uh, some guy wearing thick glasses in a distant archival room in the basement of the office building. They had a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian on their hands. And uh, they, they quickly uh, you know, shook his hand and, and said how pleased they were. But he was already going and went off to... Uh, continue his career uh, eventually, I think, at Washington University in St. Louis, uh, and later uh, today at Penn State University, where he is uh, continuing to produce uh, scholarship on an extraordinarily high level. And, and hopefully we'll have him on the show sometime. Mark is, however, a, a technophobe, as I recall. And uh, when we occupied the museum, we found his the only connection he had to the outside world was a single-line telephone. Uh, with a, a rotary dial, and even for 1993, that was primitive. So uh, it's, it's reaching Mark by email is, is not something that's going to happen, and even the phone is, is questionable. If you write him a letter, uh, he'll answer you the next day, but, uh, but who writes letters? So Mark left the museum, went on to his, his uh, wonderfully successful career afterwards, a new director was hired. Uh, she was someone who had formerly directed uh, museums and became the first professional museum director. And I was hired at about uh, shortly afterwards, not exactly the same time, uh, to, to fill Mark's historical shoes, uh, a huge thing uh, for a, a, a newly uh, graduated uh, Ph.D. to do. I actually hadn't even gotten the Ph.D. at that point, so I could hardly uh, begin to claim to replace Mark Neely uh, in terms of his, his accomplishments, but I would functionally try to do the things he did and learn uh, uh, in his footsteps. Uh, so it was an honor to, to be appointed to that job. Our task in 1993 was to build the new museum, and that's uh, what we set out to do. We were told by various consultants and people who knew uh, what we had going here that it would take several years and a certain amount of money. We were given uh, half that money and one-third the staff and told don't be late. Uh, and that's what we set out to do. So we'll come back in just a minute, talk about how the museum got built, and uh, finish up with where it's going today when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Mm -hmm. 